Hi, I'm Michael, and welcome to Beyond the Screenplay, the podcast where each week we do a conversational deep dive analysis into a film. Today we are talking about Punch Drunk Love, the 2002 film written and directed by Paul Thomas Anderson. I'm joined by the Beyond the Screenplay team, Trisha Rand. Hello, everyone. Brian Bittner. Hello, hello. And Alex Cayeras. Hi. All right, so before we jump into Punch Drunk Love, a quick reminder that for patrons tomorrow, as of the date of this releasing, so tomorrow being the 12th, uh, we are doing our live Q&A session. So if you want to come and hear us answer some questions suggested by you guys, that will be happening tomorrow. And a question for Spotify listeners is, what is your favorite Adam Sandler movie? A question I struggle with constantly. Sure. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but I'm curious. Should we say, but like, should we rule out Punch Drunk Love just to get besides Punch Drunk not that, Love? Yeah, no, not that everyone will say that. Yeah. But, okay. Listen, follow okay. your heart, everybody. Like, yeah. It, yeah. If it's little Nikki, say little Nikki. It's yeah, fine. Exactly. Right. Yeah. Okay. Apparently, that's Paul Thomas Anderson came and hung out with Adam Sandler on the set of Little Nikki, and that's really? when they became friends. And so they hung out for Aww. five hours, and they were like, "We need to make a movie together." Um, so there's a little piece of trivia. <laughs> uh, okay, so Punch Drunk Love, I love it. Uh, so to to kind of talk about my first experience with it, it was watching it in film school. We had these like uh, Monday night screening nights where we would go to the big theater. It was almost like an auditorium. And uh, the film class would screen different movies. And I forget what class this was, but it was like a Monday night. Not many people were there. There's just like this weird like magic that happens and like a late night like screening with mm -hmm. like other film nerds. Mm -hmm. uh, and then Punch Drunk Love came on and happened. And I was just like, this is the best thing that I've ever seen. Uh, I felt so seen in the movie. You know, there's a lot of social anxiety in the movie that I can relate to quite a bit. Uh, and so I was obsessed with this movie in college, watched it a lot, uh, it heavily influenced all the like student films that I was making at the time. And then I don't think I've seen it probably in 10 years. And I know that because uh, one of the first dates basically that I went on with by now fiance was watching Punch Drunk Love and I did a little presentation. I made a little keynote of Aww. like, here's all the things that you should pay attention to when watching Punch Drunk Love. The sound design is great. Pay attention to the music and the camera, blah, blah, blah. I'm a nerd. Wow. Um, anyway, so I watched it then and then haven't watched it because I was afraid that I wasn't going to still love it. Mm. And the more recent PTA films have not worked for me in the same way that there will be blood and earlier like really really worked for me um but re-watching it last night it was just it cemented that this is one of my favorite films it was super formative for me i think it's super weird and exactly mm -hmm. like my sense of humor and it's wonderful so those are my feelings about punch drunk love uh brian how do you feel about it because i know you're a little pta well, <laughs> on our There Will Be Blood episode, I mentioned that there's only one PTA movie that I really love, but this is it. Um, yeah, I, I saw it shortly after it came out uh, at home with a friend of mine. I mean, his home. Uh, but uh, and I there are fewer than 10 times I can think of where a movie has like given me a visceral, like actual physical reaction to to it. Um, 
And I just, there was a point in this movie where I just, my body had a reaction to what was happening basically. And the, the weird thing is, I don't even remember when it was. I imagine it must have been during the like, sister coming with Lena and the forklift and the phone call uh-huh. and you know everything like it must have just been then where I my brain just like exploded and I was like this, <laughs> this movie is like putting me through this right now um and uh and yeah I, I really love it I I wonder if there is a sort of time to tolerance ratio that I have with PTA and this being a 95 minute PTA movie. It's just like, it all fits nice and neatly into this time period. So I don't have time to, to sort of get bucked off the Bronco. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I, I love it. I've seen it several times. Also haven't probably seen it in close to 10 years, but rewatched it, uh, obviously for this and just what a, what a gorgeous everything. There are things about it. I didn't appreciate before. There are things about it that still hit me right in the chest. Um, I feel like I want to amend my top 10 of the two thousands now because it was definitely in consideration, but I'm like, eh, it's probably on that list. Uh, so yeah, very excited to jump into it with you guys. And, um, also Trisha, before we started recording, you had a whole thing about how much you hate puns. Um, oh, so I no. just, I know, I just want to say, I'm not going to make any during this episode because I know you find them off putting. Uh... <laughs> wow. Good night, everyone. Wow. That's my time. Wow. Also, you just really outed me right there. Do you have any idea how many people are going to tweet puns at me, Brian? <laughs> no one actually likes what? puns. <laughs> <laughs> just look at our discord god okay now i'm very stressed thank you wow i'm i'm actually perfectly in the mood now to podcast <laughs> 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 about this movie okay well yeah so how do you feel about this movie trisha um i really really love this film i i'm a generally a, a pta fan and this movie is definitely one of my favorites um but i just think it's so funny like i I like want to pull apart the humor with you guys for a while, uh, a little bit later as we're talking, but I, I just think it's so funny and so quotable. Like I probably quote this movie maybe more than any other, like in my day-to-day life. Um, that's that mattress man is something I say <laughs> constantly. Um, I also, I find myself saying business is very food a lot, which I just, <laughs> um, it's, <laughs> No one ever understands that reference. Um, But yeah, I don't know. I just, I really, I really love this film. I think it's so um, sparkling and like refreshing and um, light while at the same time, obviously having this like inner darkness to it. Um, Like we can get into it, but the filmmaking technique, you know, is constantly signaling to you that you're watching like this really fluffy rom-com Um, and that's not what this movie is at all. It's like this very twisted sort of like character drama in some ways. Um, and I just love that pair up. Like it almost feels like the real, like, will they, won't they romance at the heart of this is just sort of between Barry Egan and himself. Right. And like, will it really, will it really come together for him? Um, there's just so much that I really love. It's so quirky. It really was, I think it was in our, um, 
our uh, Eternal Sunshine episode, we talked about like the quirkiness of the early aughts. <laughs> um, and this was right in there. Like this is, you know, pure era of all of those uh, Eternal Sunshiny kinds of movies that are just like, yeah. how weird can we be? And you'll still go on this rom-com-ish journey with us, um, you know, from the harmonium to the pudding, to the blonde brothers <laughs> yeah. on the phone sex line, to even like to the mattress store, to the every just everything about it. Uh, I adore it. Um, I don't know why it holds together. Maybe we can puzzle that out, the four of us, as we sit here and discuss why why does this movie work when it should not? Uh, but yeah, very special film to me. Yeah, yeah, cool. Okay, and Alex, what about you? Yeah, this is a really unanimous episode, I think, because I also <laughs> absolutely love this movie. Um, it was also very formative for me. Uh, I, I, I think it was a different film class. I, I don't think it was in the same class as you, Michael. I, I think I took like intro to film over summer school, actually. Um, mm -hmm. And, and I, I remember distinctly, we watched just like the opening of this movie, just in like the sound design, like day, because uh, it's just like such an obviously like, visceral example of just using every every aspect of sound design at your fingertips as a filmmaker to just do storytelling and to create a mood and to create anxiety and it's just it's it's over the top but in like a masterful way uh and uh and yeah this movie it it's just like so refreshing to watch because you just feel like at once at both is the work of somebody who just knows the craft in and out, but also who feels so free and who, mm -hmm. who isn't constrained to trying to like, make sure that it makes sense. You know, it's like, it, it, it does make sense, but not in a logical surface level story way. This is about like a deeper emotional sense. Uh, and it's, it, it's, it could be completely incoherent and it could just be one of those art films where things are just kind of random for no reason and it's like hey it's okay because it's an art film and those can get boring and and feel kind of lazy but nothing feels boring or lazy about this it all feels like it's just capturing a vibe so hard and 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 it i i want to go on this ride with it uh i'd so it, i don't know it, it's it's a movie that is one of my favorites as well because i don't know how you even make this movie i don't know how you mm -hmm. like intentionally put this together and have it feel both so incoherent and utterly coherent at the same time. <laughs> like that's right. It feels like magic. Yeah. When I was watching get back the, the documentary about the Beatles, I was really thinking about Beatles lyrics and like, there's a thing about Beatles lyrics where they, they don't make logical sense at all. Um, and they don't really make like allegorical metaphorical sense either, but they make a weird intuitive sense where you're just like, yeah, yeah, these Beatles lyrics are speaking to me and they are nonsense. But there's <laughs> something about the way that they rhyme and sort of like the rhythm of the words and the way that they like are sung and fall in this in the sentences that I feel like Punch Drunk Love is the equivalent of that, where it doesn't actually make any logical sense or metaphorical sense, but it does somehow weirdly make a lot of intuitive sense. What doesn't make sense about Jagarudeva Om Obladi Oblada? My exact point. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Come on. Gesundheit. Yeah. No, it's funny that you say that because I was thinking how this reminds me of like a song. Yeah. Where mm. a, a song is trying to capture this mood, but you only, you know, you only need to 
capture that or hang on to that mood for for four minutes. Um, so you can make songs that feel very like you're bleeding from the heart and you are just living in this space. And I think some movies are able to do that. But then over the course of two hours, you're going, yeah, but there's there's so much movie in here that I don't feel like I am living in this in this mood. And and this more than almost any movie I can think of, this genuinely just feels like someone like reached into their heart and took something out of it and was able to actually put that on screen and actually sustain it for the entire time where you always feel like you are in this space that that this artist has created, which takes a lot of obviously, you know, vulnerability and and self, uh, you know, looking inward, I guess, but then also takes this craft, Mm -hmm. right, Of, of like the the sort of right brain or whatever you or left brain whatever you want to call that that very technical aspect where it's like how do i do all of this mood emotion bleeding from my heart stuff but then also how do i take that and put it into a in into a filmmaker box that this feels like you have watched a actually coherent movie um with like smart technical things happening and mm-hmm. it doesn't just feel like someone was like man i really want to make a movie about this and then went out and shot a bunch of stuff because it meant something to them and put it together and it feels like some terrible you know student film hey you're talking about my student films there Brian. <laughs> <laughs> yeah well and so there was a lot about the the making of this movie that i never knew that for some reason it never really occurred to me to go and and look up until recently um, and I think partially just because it wasn't super available, like the Criterion Blu-ray came out only a couple of years ago. Um, but so something that I think is interesting, you know, we're talking about how, you know, it, it feels like like refreshing in, in some ways. And, you know, uh, so we, Paul Thomas Anderson started working on this, thinking about it while finishing Magnolia. And he was like, I need something else. Like, I need to go the opposite direction of Magnolia. And thinking about these two films back to back yeah very different moods and tones and things uh explored there and then also what was really interesting is hearing about how collaborative this uh movie was from the get-go and that john bryan who did the score they were having conversations before shooting and during shooting and john bryan would put together little like inst- uh, like instrumental but like percussive like like songs and little melodies for Paul Thomas Anderson to be playing in his headphones when choreographing uh, like the dolly shots because he wanted some kind of rhythm. Like John Bryan was even just recording Paul Thomas, Paul Thomas Anderson on the street, uh, like performing these rhythms and then would go and like compose something to it. And so then the rhythm that they had kind of agreed with uh, agreed on was baked baked into the actual like shot so he could compose that rhythm on top and like add layers in the score and so there was just a lot of like collaboration happening throughout the entire process and i feel like every time i hear uh about a good movie that's usually what's happened is that the creators get to collaborate for a long time together and make something that feels whole and like we're saying like you're saying brian this it's like a song but somehow it sustains this whole time because just all of that is you know it was created together with all these people and so all those elements are there doing everything they need to the whole time and it feels of a impossible whole somehow right Mm. 
I, I was just think, uh, looking at John Bryan's uh, filmography because I was like, oh, yeah, he also did Eternal Sunshine, which, of course, we're saying. And then right after those two movies, he did I Heart Huckabees. So sure. he's like one stranger than fiction away from having a full sweep. Of- <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, what, a, what a sweep there. It's great. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, one of the first things I wrote down watching the movie again uh, last night was just yeah, the musicality of this movie. And, mm-hmm. and, and it's it's cool to hear that there was such a collaborative process with John Bryan from the beginning. And I think this wouldn't be possible without that. And and, and I love how, you know, I think that's part of why this movie does feel like a song or, or like this other kind of art. You know, we're used to movies being so plot heavy and so, you know, dialogue driven. And it's all about like the next logical step of the plot. And this movie does have a lot of, logical steps in the plot and great dialogue but overall i'm swept through the movie kind of just by this musical tempo um and i think that is part of what makes it feel so magical and coherent while being incoherent is that you are swept along by this sense of like we have an instinct for music and tempo in music and this movie carries us that way yeah and there are a few instances so I'm thinking obviously about the harmonium, um, which I know was a story from John Bryan, right? He had a harmonium and I think, you know, he was telling uh, P.T. Anderson about how it had a hole in it. And like he found it on the street and he like patched it with duct tape. And so like, that's cute. But the harmonium being a really critical part of the character journey also signals to us as an audience member, okay, just, you know, go with this here. This is really going to be more, yeah, like a song or like, yeah, the musicality we're talking about to the composition of the film as a film. And so like, I love that this movie never explains where that harmonium comes from. Don't Mm. even worry about it. Like, and the car accident that immediately (laughs) precedes it right at the opening is, you know, just an absolute shock. And you keep expecting one of those two things to be related to each other or to the plot of the movie. And it's not, but it, what it is doing is creating character. Like, I don't know, like it's putting us in the headspace of Barry um, where it's just like the world feels chaotic and dangerous to him. Right. And like incredibly violent. um, And that, that things are happening uh, around him and he's like incredibly unsafe. Right. Um, and then here's the the tiny piano that's dropped on the curb and he it's his job to save it. Right. And so it's just like it's not going to um, I think the the like one two punch of the car accident and the piano being set down on the curb, neither one of which we get to see anything more of. Um, we don't know who sets the piano down on the curb or why or what the car accident is or what. Um those two things right out of the gate signal to us like, okay, we're just going to be with Barry for a little while. And this yeah. is the world Barry lives in. The world Barry lives in is just pure chaos. It's super dangerous. He feels very unsettled in it. He feels like, you know, unhinged in it. Like, no, because no one else sees what he sees, right? No one sees the car accident. No one sees the piano. Like he's just kind of alone. And like what he sees is so horrifying that there's, his reaction actually seems very logical, right? If that's, if that's Barry's world, then his reaction is very logical um, because his world makes no sense. Right. So I think that it's like doing a really critical POV thing. And again, yeah. yeah, Reinforcing that, like 
we can we can come back to every time the he like returns and returns and returns to the harmonium but it's it's a a musical um symbol that is like very very important to the character that kind of reminds us to stay in like a musical place if we can in our brains when you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Yeah, it's something we've talked about before where how a movie teaches you to watch it. And yep. this movie Big teaches time. you how to watch it in 60 seconds, right? Because yep. <laughs> even before any of that, you open on this like strange image of a man in a suit in a desk that seems to be surrounded by nothing in like a storage unit or something, right? So just just the opening, like literally frame of the movie is something's off here and then you have the car accident which like you said like is it even real we don't know because the delivery people don't seem to care they just want to drop off a harmonium on the curb like you know why was that where it was delivered um and then but then the harmonium is real because other characters are seeing it so right. it just very very quickly says like this is kind of a dream logic movie don't worry too much about about whether things are real or how they connect sort of logically that's not that's not what you're here for you're yeah. here for for this ride that i'm taking you on mm. yeah it has an almost david lynchian quality to it there, there's yeah. that just like slightly surreal like just highly emotionally emotionally heightened surrealness uh which i i i, I love in a good david lynch film how he he does also do the same thing of setting up a world that is not quite reality and the rules aren't going to quite apply here but early enough on you get oriented to like okay my expectations are different this is not a movie where my job is to logically put together these things into like a realistic set of events this is yeah. a different kind of logic yeah 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 and as you're saying trisha all of it like centered around and focused on subjectivity of like how does yeah. it feel to be Barry and all the filmmaking tools are doing lots and lots of work to put us in that headspace and it's simultaneously the most fun ride ever and extremely disconcerting and terrifying at times but just like both of the sequences of when, when we see Barry at work and he's getting the phone calls and like the guy's buzzing him even though he could just turn around but there's so there's sound constantly being like Barry your sister's calling your sister's calling Barry your sister's calling mm -hmm. while he's trying to do a thing the music is stressing him out stressing us out but then he goes and there's a moment where he can go to the harmonium and things quiet down for a little bit it's like okay maybe this is a safe space so we're using sound and music to do that when uh, Emily shows up with his sister is <laughs> like like my favorite sequence ever of anything maybe yeah but just like the crazy momentum of the camera as it's dollying like being wheeled like at full pace across the warehouse with his sister marching to come and like yell at him like it's such an intense intense style of filmmaking that you wouldn't think would be in a romantic comedy right but it is clearly making us feel how Barry feels about his sister, about all these situations. And so I just love that, that 
those filmmaking tools are doing that. And then even just the writing of the scenes and the pacings of the scenes where so Emily's in the office with Barry and his sister is like, I have to go to the car to get my thing. I'm going to them marches off. And so they're alone. And so now Barry's in this mode of like, okay, I'm supposed to make small talk. I'm going to do the best I can to do that while someone's driving a forklift into the wall and yeah. chaos is surrounding. So like, you're also just getting these great moments of punctuation of, yeah, all this chaos around him. But now Barry's in this place where he's like, no, I need to be normal in front of this person. So I'm acting inappropriately the other way to like what's happening. And so I just love that all of those things are happening all at once in this like perfect synchronicity. And it's just so much fun to observe and absorb all of it happening. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a movie that wants you to call attention to the things it's doing um, or wants, wants, you to pay attention to the things it's doing, but not in a way where it feels an annoying and stylized. I mean, this movie might feel annoying to a lot of people, but, but you know, there are movies where it's like, look, I'm doing a style thing. And you're like, okay, but why? Right. In this movie, everything, you understand why everything is doing what it's doing. And the camera, as you were saying, Michael is so interesting. The, the, you know, there's a lot of times where it's placed for a nice one like he's looking down the street and then the car accident happens. He's looking at the harmonium and then the car drives up and, you know, a lot of like long takes, um, the sex ads are right underneath the coupon, you know, like things that are sort of placed, but then the, when the camera is really calling attention to itself, it's like when he is making the, the, the phone sex call and the camera start like does these weird moves where it's like, now he, we want, we want to put him on this edge of the frame, but now we're going to move him on this edge right. of the frame. Unmotivated pans. Yeah. Right. But then it starts feeling like he is trying to get out of frame yeah. and the camera's not letting him. Yeah. And he's like walking around his apartment, the camera keeps following, keeps following him. It doesn't cut. And then the almost payoff for that is when he gets the call from her the next morning and she asks for money and he starts backing away <laughs> from the camera again. Like he is trying to get away from us. And it makes me think of um, Scorsese and Taxi Driver when uh, Travis makes the call um, to, to, to you know, the woman that he's trying to date and it's like really uncomfortable. The camera just like moves away. It just like dollies away. So it's no longer looking at him anymore. It's just like looking down the street and it feels weird when you're watching the movie, but Scorsese said he wanted to, he wanted the audience to feel like they had to look away from the thing. And that's what it feels like that entire scene is doing, but it doesn't let you. Mm. Well, and you know, M Michael, you mentioned uh, your reaction to the movie. It, it, it like hits your sense of humor in a really particular way. And it also hits my sense of humor. And I think what we're describing with, you know, the extreme, camera motion and the sound design and the pace of the dialogue it's a certain type of humor that i always really appreciate when it's when it is pulled off which is yeah that, that there's a subjective experience happening these are just like normal people just kind of being annoying at each other or you know just making demands of each other that are like kind of the stakes aren't really that high actually but there's a horror element almost like like the the humor comes out of taking the social awkwardness and elevating it to actually like pure terror. And, uh, and there's like a cathartic kind of humor that comes from the extremeness of it all. And I, and I really, I love when a movie or a TV show or anything can, can pull off this thing. And sometimes it's not earned. Sometimes I've seen other movies or attempts at trying to do, I've tried to do it myself, in my own short films, um, where you try to push something to this extreme place. But in this movie, 
the character, you know, Barry himself, he's so well established at being so awkward and so uncomfortable. Uh, and the sisters are so awful. Like they're, they're really, they're, they're just so awful that the, the, we're with him. We're with, we buy that this is this horrifying. Um, and, and me, there's so great early on when he's getting all those calls. And I think it's a really simple line. Somebody, he just says like, yeah, I have seven sisters. And in that one moment, you just yeah. understand so much. <laughs> he has seven sisters. That phone call you just heard, time seven. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm glad you bring this up, Alex, because I think this has to do a lot with why I think this movie is so funny. Um, you know, I took a like a comedy and film class in college, basically. And one of the things that the prof was really obsessed with uh, making sure that we understood was about um, inappropriate reactions. And I think I've talked about this on here before, maybe like back in Groundhog Day or something. But it's like right. when a character dramatically either underreacts or dramatically overreacts to something. And it goes back to like the earliest days of vaudeville, right? Which is like a character goes to pick up you know, something that's very lightweight, like a book or a feather, and they like can't lift it, right? And it's just so heavy and like they fall on their face because they're trying to lift this thing that we understand is like they're exerting the wrong amount of like effort to do like a very simple task, right? It's a dramatic overreaction to the task that they're doing and vice versa, right? Charlie Chaplin was the master of this where it's like he's in incredible amounts of danger and he kind of just like shrugs and wiggles his shoulders. Um, it's it's a very like classic comedic, um, I don't know, joke is not the right word, but like sort of mode of, of humor. And that's what this movie is, right? Like Barry's... Barry's whole thing is dramatic, either underreaction, where it's like he's been kidnapped by the four blonde brothers. And he's like, listen, um, $500 is actually a lot of money to me. And like, you literally were just kidnapped. You need to like, you know, act up. You need to have a bigger reaction than the one that you're having right now. Um, or, you know, his date retells the story to him about the the hammer and sliding glass door and he goes and destroys the bathroom at the restaurant because he's so enraged by this like for her an innocent little anecdote right and it's the same thing at the party it's like he's being intimidated by his brothers-in-law his seven brothers-in-law or whatever um and people keep retelling the same embarrassing story about him over and over again and he goes and he smashes the, the sliding glass doors and so i think I like I I love that and it's hard to make it work these days in something that isn't slapstick or isn't vaudeville, right? Um you have to ground it believably in a character and I don't want to say that I find Barry to be grounded per se because as we discussed this movie is heavily stylized in its own way or it's not really concerned with like what normal is, right? Like it's not grounded in like our reality, but it is grounded in its own reality. Um, and right. Barry does exist as a, a real character within his own reality um, where he, uh, he has seven sisters and he sells, you know, novelty plungers for a living in from <laughs> like a warehouse. Like that's not our reality, but it is a reality. And like, you know, we, we can buy it for that reason. Um, and so, yeah, I think, I think it's just uh, I like I think it's just such a, a unique approach to character design and it buys you 
all of this humor, like uh, the entire sort of basis of the humor of the movie is rooted in this character who doesn't know how to respond or react to anything remotely appropriately. Yeah. And Adam Sandler's performance is so great. Oh my God. <laughs> well, like all of that is happening on this like macro level, like in individual like lines and line readings, I feel like we're feeling those same things happening of like this like dramatic underreaction or like you're putting the emphasis on the wrong Part. word <laughs> yeah. in this mm. sentence that's yeah. like betraying like there's several that stand out to me and I wish I could just play it. But when he gets to Hawaii and he gets in the taxi and he's just like, can you take me to where the beaches and hotels are? And I'm going to need a phone like mm-hmm. <laughs> like all of that in the same like question. But like and I'm going to need a phone isn't a quest. Like there's just so many weird things happening and the delivery of it is. I just, it's just so good. And it immediately reveals this, like, yeah, the inner stress of Barry's life in such a, like, subtle, like, simple way. It's amazing. Well, and the one right after that is where he's on the phone and he's trying to get his sister to tell him where, like, Lena's hotel room is. (laughs) And she doesn't, like, she's just giving him a hard time in, like, a friendly, sisterly way. She's like, oh my God, you like her. You have a crush on her. And he's like, you tell me where that hotel is. Like, (laughs) I'll kill you. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) It threatens her life. (laughs) Like, and the fact that it's just a joke, right, is obvious the camera cuts away and like, then he's like walking up to the hotel where she is, right? So it's just, that's a dramatic overreaction. So funny within the context of the scene. Right. And before I forget, I the, the moment that I've forgotten while we're talking about sisters and his kind of relationship with his sisters and the one in particular, uh, I can't pronounce, what's that actress's name? Uh, Mary, oh, Mary Lynn, Lynn um, Ratscub, something like that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah right. Yeah. We're all avoiding uh, the last name. <laughs> amazing yeah. and hilarious. But there's a moment after, you know, Emily Watson and Adam Sandler, uh, what's her name? Lena, right? Lena, Lena yeah. and Barry mm-hmm. have like met and they're in the hotel room and she's on the phone with the sister uh, and, you know, pretending like Barry's not there. And the sister, as she's always doing, is sort of saying like, you know what he's like he's weird you you you, you want to want to be around him anyway and she, and then lena's like yeah he was strange and then sister's immediately like hang on well, it's not that strange like, don't say that <laughs> yeah. like but t- i just love that because it feels like like they do care about him like mm-hmm. she does have like care about her brother and i feel like i don't know i just love that little detail that makes this whole thing feel like I don't know, just there's an, an extra dimension in it that lets me, yeah. that draws me deeper into this world because it isn't flat. It's it's big and it's exaggerated and it's not reality, but it's not flat. There's depth to all of it. Right. Mm-hmm. Wikipedia tells me Ricegub. Ricegub. Mary Lynn nice. Ricegub. Nice. Um, yeah, I love her character for that reason, Michael. It's, it's you know, these sisters, if they, you know, if they all love Barry in their own way, they have, you know, a really horrible way of showing it most of the time. But her actions do show that she's trying to she's both like upset at him for not, you know, complying or like doing what she thinks would be good for him. Uh, and also kind of trying to defend him or like or like make him look good in front of other people. You know, when she's talking to her right. to, to Lena, she's like you know like yeah he is maybe he's just too busy for a girlfriend right now like she's trying to find excuses for him and like Mm -hmm. defend him in this in this kind of sweet way but also just has no bedside manner when he obviously (laughs) like needs emotional support (laughs) so it's a great contradiction where it's she both 
seems to want what she thinks is best for him, but also has no emotional intelligence about how to truly be with him or help him. Um, and and I also just love the 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 bad guy characters too. They're also like have a third dimension in that way. You know, I just love that it's in Provo, Utah, and it's this mattress <laughs> store, and they have this whole phone sex line scam going. But even even within that kind of this like goofy uh, you know crime family or whatever, there's there's funny dynamics and uh, awkwardness and vulnerability. Uh, so I mean, Philip Seymour Hoffman. I guess we got to just talk about. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, he's upsettingly good yeah. and it's upsetting that he's not around to continue to be upsettingly good yeah. yeah um yeah well and that that all those characters also like they have a reason like um, a moral justification for what yes, they're doing i love also. how often they justify you know like well you're the pervert you're the one who right. called yeah. the phone sex line yeah 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 it's just funny but yeah philip seymour hoffman my god yeah i think that that you know obviously turns out to be sort of the main I guess obstacle in the movie, although of course Barry is his own obstacle, right? He doesn't really like there could be just a whole movie without that entire plot line, right? That's just sort of like Barry learning to get out of his own way, maybe, um, or like be honest about how he feels about Lena and his sisters, etc. Um getting his puddings redeemed. Like that's a whole movie <laughs> without necessarily the whole phone sex line. But it does give us an opportunity because I, I do want to talk for a few minutes about violence in this movie because yes. it's it's such an important part of who Barry is and like ultimately where he finds himself and like finds his strength. Right. I think it's really fascinating. Um, that aspect of the relationship that he has, he ultimately ends up having with the like, yeah, bad guys in their mattress store. Um, but I think it's interesting because the movie like kind of weaves that subplot in like, I don't want to say slowly, but it does have these interesting like breaks to it where there are whole sections of it that we're not really worried about what's going on at the mattress store or like, um, and not just when he goes to Hawaii, although that's a really smart, like that whole sequence is just such a smart, like, get the characters out of their regular lives. That's where they can be like honest with each other and really fall in love. Um, but there's these other like little beats and reprieves to it where for a while we don't hear from them or like, we don't really know what they're going to do. We don't really know what they want. Um, and in fact, it's interesting. The pacing of that plot is really fascinating. I wish I like, I want to like chart it out at a certain point where it's like every single time we hear from like Georgia or, you know, the, the brothers or whatever they show up. I think it, the pacing of it is really very, very, very smart. But then also I think it's so interesting that in Hawaii it's Barry that calls her like, you know, he gives them the $500 mm -hmm. and it's not obvious that they're going to do anything else. They probably are not going to do anything else, but because of his relationship with Lena, it's, you know, made him strong and made him want to stand up for himself he reaches out to them and he's like, hang on, you have to give me that money back. Um, and it kind of tips off the events of the second half of the, uh, the second act. Um, or actually really that's the third act at that point. And I just think it's, um, I think as a subplot, it's just really cleverly woven into the A plot. And so you mentioned violence earlier. And I think that is one of the striking things about this movie is, uh, you know, that scene when they, when they hit the car and Lena's injured and 
it's just there's such an amazing like precise type of catharsis that happens when you see all of the unfocused you know nervous repressed anger energy just the kind of scatteredness of barry i'll just get like laser focused down into this like precision takedown of these guys (laughs) and it's just like really really satisfying and as part of that thing where this movie just feels impossible because i don't like i wouldn't have thought to do that maybe like how did you know that that's exactly what i wanted right now pta and that that's that this would like make emotional logical sense for that to happen now but it it, but it just feels perfect Mm. um but yeah the 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 kind of unfocused violence of barry and then it seems like this person this love this you know this caring for somebody is almost like the key to channel all of that energy into like a purpose Mm. yeah i was thinking about the the like violence and and also just like the weirdness of the movie but through the eyes of a rom-com and i was thinking about how like you know the like a cookie cutter kind of bad rom-com is it's sort of nothing like it's just this like aren't people nice and like this thing is nice and like oops there was a bad thing but like in the end it was all nice right um but then you have something like richard curtis's um rom-coms just like notting hill and bridget jones and love actually where it's like oh people are gonna swear and like you know things are really gonna happen like when harry met sally or something where it's like no there's like people actually like cheat on you know wives and like hey this is kind of more real but you're still often just like (laughs) just like in one kind of facet or plane of existence of like what love and like emotion are. Right. Mm. But so then in this movie, it's like, yeah, you have that, but then on top of it, you have this anxiety and this anger, but then also just this, this like dream mood, the way when it cuts from one scene to another, we just like see colors for a while. Like you're, (laughs) we are genuinely just sort of saying like, and of course, not all of this is about the love story. It's about Barry. It's, it's about, you know, but I think like, that's what makes this movie feel so um, uh, jarring and, and compelling is that it's, it's taking all of these emotions and kind of shoving them into this 90 minute ride where you are getting a love story, but you're also getting a story about anxiety and you're also getting a story about like this character who feels violent and he, and he feels like he has to say, but then like he gets to do it in a way that's justified. So as you said, Alex, that feels cathartic for us. So it feels like it's like the movie starts with this pot boiling but then when it finally does you know go then we are it's it goes in all the ways we want it to and it feels like such a payoff for Mm -hmm. for what the setup was yeah well and then it's like you know the first time we see barry being super violent is at the party right where he's been you know annoyed by his sisters but not to the point that i think most of us would then shatter three panes of glass in the Mm -hmm. glass door uh but it's so violent and it's it's him like trying to express himself or like Mm. trying to let something out like all he has is violence but it's coming from this place of like pain and so then when you're seeing him use this violence to like protect the person that he loves it is kind of the like a a character arc shift where like now he has a purpose and something else to put his you know issues toward or whatever um and it also kind of reminds me john bryan also talked about how uh 
for Paul Thomas Anderson, he was almost thinking about this movie as a, a musical, like an MGM musical from the 50s right. where no one actually ever breaks into song. Mm. And so that's where a lot of the like hypersaturation comes in. And there's obviously like a lot of attention to color, the blue and the red and all that symbolizes and just love when they're at the airport and they're like together and there's an airplane going by with like the red trim on mm-hmm. top it's like connecting them with the red anyway um but so i wonder also if there's a little bit of like you know instead of a dance number where the hero has now you know shows how much they've learned and changed we get a weirdly uh sharp action sequence kind mm-hmm. of or, or this violence that kind of demonstrates that to us instead yeah, it's so clean and efficient in the way that you're talking about. And Alex, you pointed it out in the filmmaking um, where it's like there are no waste. Like Barry suddenly turns into Jason Bourne, right? Where it's like where yeah. there's no yeah. wasted motions in taking these guys down. Um, and like, you know, he gets the tire iron immediately and like <laughs> just is like on a rampage. But again, it's not it's this like violent outburst, but like we we all can relate to Barry's like frustrations at his sisters ragging him, his family like being told the same humiliating anecdote over a date that he's heard a thousand times before from his sisters. That's that would be very frustrating. So it's like we feel the same kind of frustration that he does, but not to the degree that we see him reacting. But then, yeah, when it's perfectly appropriate, we get the exact correct necessary reaction not an underreaction not an overreaction not rage you know not uncontrolled rage necessarily or like too little like oh please don't whatever it's just exactly what is needed i'm gonna take these guys down and i love that at the very end he hands the tire iron back to the guy in the truck Uh he's like this guy's not gonna get out of the truck and mess with me at this point like here's your tire iron buddy and then he like right. gets you know gets back in the car to drive Lena to the hospital. I I think that's part of the reason why it just yeah as you're pointing out Alex it's just this like coalesces all of Barry's power into exactly where what he needs to do in that moment and what it needs to be. Um, and it's interesting that the movie then kind of creates like the necessary mini crisis of like he left her at the hospital maybe she won't like him now which lasts for all of 30 seconds because he has to go deal with Philip Seymour Hoffman. Mm-hmm. Right. And that that's the only part that feels a little formulaic to me. Mm. Um, it's just the like, we're going to throw like a sort of unnecessary obstacle between these two people. But that is like a rom-com thing. Most of those, like we're going to break them up in the second half of the second act just for a minute, just so there right. can be a grand gesture at the end. I don't know. I think it's all right. But I do also like what it does for Lena's character, you know, when she uh, because yeah. like she is a very lenient person, even in this world. Certainly. right? Um, so so I do like that it gives her that moment to be like, you left me at the hospital. You can't do that, yeah, you, you can't know, do because that, it, it's right. not like he's like cured and he's suddenly fine. Right. Like he is still going to be Barry and like he is still going to have these times where he needs to do something and doesn't realize that he maybe sh- can, that could wait till tomorrow kind of thing, right? Um, so I like that it gives her that moment to to explain to him how a relationship works. Yeah. Well, speaking of Lena, I think she's always the most fascinating part of this movie to me and just trying to decode like how her character fits into this reality and how I'm supposed to kind of read her character because objectively, you know, placed in another reality, 
like this guy is giving you so many red flags like this guy may be dangerous like this doesn't make any sense that you who you know maybe you were a single child in your family maybe you have kind of a loneliness to you you are also a little bit strange but obviously more well adjusted and more able to function in the world than Barry is what what is keeping you here what is drawing you to this man that you're like pursuing him you know half the time um but it also it's it's part of that like dream logic of the movie it also works and i also feel that it makes sense you know when they're together uh but yeah it's just you know with with barry's character you know adam sandler is playing him you know, as an extreme character and so when he's reacting in extreme ways I understand the internal logic of why he's doing this now or doing that now. How do you guys track Lena's character throughout the movie? And the, do you do you feel thrown off sometimes with her leniency <laughs> or or trying? To, I, it's 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 always been hard for me to track like where she is and why she's sticking with this or why she's not running away and why why the love music is coming up now after you've been asked to leave the restaurant. Because he destroyed the bathroom, you know, um, it all works in the logic of the movie, but just her character as an isolated thing is always fascinating to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I feel like for me, I was thinking about this a lot too, watching it. And I, I think kind of where I land is that so much of the world, as we've been talking about, we see through Barry's eyes and there may be things that could be real, but they have the dial turned up to 11, right? So like... Maybe his sisters are hard on him and do push him to date and all this stuff. But in reality, they wouldn't be like this extreme or turn up to 11 and all in all these different ways. And so for me with Lena, I feel like she's seen a little bit maybe through Barry eyes and that she, she has this kind of like hyper like sweetness and empathy to her that is maybe heightened because that's how how seen Barry feels with her or mm. or it's something along those lines where it's like I, I feel like the same way everybody else's uh you know quote unquote bad traits are highly exaggerated i feel like her patience and empathy and willingness to like see the human behind the weirdness is kind of like exaggerated beyond reality also so somewhere in there is kind of how i navigate the Lena situation. Yeah, I think that there's a couple things going on. One of which is that Barry's like extreme reactions often create a cycle of other people reacting in extreme ways. So it's like when we see um you know he kicks out the the sliding glass doors at his sister's house, then everyone in the room is like come on Barry. like everyone starts screaming at him right and it just like perpetuates a cycle of like a violent reaction to like a violent thing that happened and like Barry what Barry himself was reacting right like there's sort of the spiral of like they're they don't understand how badly they're hurting him but in his mind it's very bad he reacts badly they react badly and it's just kind of like everything gets like more and more and more dire and heavy and dramatic right um and that's actually in one of the like best scenes in the movie 
where he's arguing, yelling on the phone with Philip Seymour Hoffman's character, right? Where they're like, shut up. No, you shut up. Shut up. Like it just, it keeps escalating, right? Because they're both reacting in like these really extreme ways. And actually that's sort of the root of the entire problem with like the, I mean, extortion and like shady business (laughs) is the root of the entire problem with the phone sex uh, scam. But it's this constant like, no, I'm not going to do this. I'm going to call the police. Well, then you're going to do this. Well, then you're going to do this. And it just creates this cycle, right? And I feel like Lena is this cycle breaker for him in the way, Mm. right? So like her patience and her peace and her like sort of stillness and like, actually, this isn't that big of a deal, Barry. Like in a lot of scenes, like after he destroys the bathroom, right? Where he's like, uh, I don't like it here. Can we go? Right. If she'd been like, I don't want to go. Why, why would we go? I don't like it here mm. or, or whatever. You know, if she, if she reacted bigger than Barry did, then that would create that cycle that we see him get stuck in. But she instead breaks the cycle and is like, all right, let's go. Right. This isn't actually that big of a deal. Let's just go. Um, and, and signals to him that he doesn't have to get any bigger. He can dial it back. He can calm back down. Um, and it's interesting in the scene after the date where he's saying goodbye to her at her door. And then he says, okay, bye-bye. And he walks off and he's like, he gets <laughs> right. into that self-deprecating cycle where he's berating himself of like, okay, bye-bye, bye-bye. And he's like repeating mm-hmm. it to himself and, and telling himself how stupid he is for saying that. Again, she breaks that cycle. She calls downstairs and says like, I wanted to kiss you just now. Um, and like reminds him, no, you're okay. You don't need to be trapped in that. Um, now, and, and actually, you know, we can come back to the harmonium, but the harmonium is also a cycle breaking device for Barry, right? Where it's like, he feels himself starting to spiral and starting to freak out. And he goes and plays a few notes on the harmonium and he realizes like, oh, I don't have to, I don't have to react. I don't have to be reactive in the same way that I was about to be. Um, and the harmonium kind of helps him do that. So Lena is, is sort of a a parallel to that in a lot of ways. Um, now, is that realistic as a human person? <laughs> Probably right. not. Like, yeah. I don't know. I'm reminded of a lot of the uh, the Manic Pixie Dream Girls yeah. mm-hmm. of around this era. And I feel like Barry is the Manic Pixie in this situation. <laughs> and, uh, Lena is maybe like not, you know, like the straight man in this sense. Just dream girl in some ways. Sure. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. But just that like. I feel like in a lot of the rom-coms of this era, you have somebody who's like off step with society and doesn't know how to respond appropriately in social settings is like the woman. And then the guy's like, I just love her so much because she's so quirky. Um, (laughs) And and it's not realistic, right? Like every time that happens, I'm like, run for your life, Joel. Um, (laughs) Clementine is nuts. Um, Also not a real person, right? Like Barry's not a real person. No no one in, in, in Lena isn't either. But yeah, I just feel like obviously she's the more um, probably realistic person in real life. But in the world of this movie is far and away the less realistic person because no one would react the way that she reacts to Barry. But it's what it's what's needed, as we pointed out. This isn't a true rom-com. A true rom-com is where something like When Harry Met Sally, where both characters have their own individual arcs, their own individual problems. Lena doesn't have any problems. This isn't a rom-com in that sense. It's really just a character drama about Barry. Yeah. One that that also that I think, you know, thinking about that bathroom scene again, like you're pointing out, 
it, it's almost like her superpower is like an x-ray into like the motivations behind yeah. his extreme mm. reactions and so like if you could understand that Barry beat up the bathroom because he's in so much pain about this and wants to connect with her and wants like something better then it is kind of sweet that he's worried about those things and so I feel like she's kind of in this impossible way as you're saying able to connect with that and and I was struck by you know, Trisha, you all uh, often bring up like love stories. Characters need reasons to like be in love with each other. And this movie, the way that nothing is subtle, uh, the reason Barry is in love with Lena is not subtle either, but it's like great. Like we need that. We need to understand, oh, like she makes him better, like truly better. Like they bring, they allow themselves to be like their truest, best selves. And we see that in a very overt, clear way, um, which I think is really important. And I do think, Alex, you pointed out a few minutes ago that she mentioned she doesn't have any family. She doesn't have any siblings. That does all the heavy lifting for her. Like, it's really all we need, right? Like, we can just understand from her perspective how the grass might be greener. Like, how she might want to be a part of something, a part of a big family, right? Like, she might want to, she might, uh, I don't know, connect or just, yeah, long for some of the chaos that Barry experiences, right? Like, if if what you experience is seven overbearing siblings, then that seems over that seems terrible to you. But if the loneliness that you experience is having zero siblings or anybody that cares that you exist, then maybe you would want seven overbearing siblings. So I just feel like that line, that one line, does like a lot of work for us for like where we we sort of fill in the character backstory ourselves of like, why would Lena still be here? Oh yeah, she's an only child. Oh yeah, okay. Like maybe that would be enough where she would be interested. There's a little bit of buy-in from her already. And it just the the hint of dimensionality. And we know she says that she's divorced also. Oh, so yeah. she has mm. experience with relationships, which maybe lends her like, well, she must know at least kind right. of what she's looking for. Even if this doesn't make any sense to us, it must to her in some weird way. Yeah, for right. sure. You can, you can almost fill in a little headcanon of like, she has been with people who maybe weren't so nice and she saw a picture of Barry and she was like, this looks like what I need in my life. <laughs> like the opposite of these like... You know, you can imagine a type of person she was with who's like the anti-Barry. Yeah. Yeah. Or, you know, it's just a complicated kind of love where what she wants is to kind of like take care of somebody, you know, like if she it's it, she is almost kind of being like a big sister to him in some ways with her patience <laughs> and her the way but she like holds, a real one. She's like right. a holding him at the end. Yeah. And so so there is like also just like a complexity to it where like I think we're always looking for like is this a healthy relationship like is this like not a codependent like are they are they like good for each other in like a healthy psychological way but love is not really healthy and psychologically you know sound a lot of the time you know there, there's different reasons we want each other and there there is like a truth in their connection that isn't logical but you feel like there is a need being met and really quickly that very silly little story that he tells her over dinner before it all turns south, where he's talking about listening to the morning DJs <laughs> on the radio. <laughs> and the fact that she listens attentively to this incredibly mundane story and <laughs>, laughs at the right moment, right? Like he's just retelling a dumb thing that happened on talk radio in the morning, but she finds it really funny at the same moment that he does. Like again, it's it's quirky 
It like only makes sense within the world of this movie, but it's doing a lot of legwork to buy us into them as a couple where it's like, she's kind of on his wavelength. Like I find this story to be really tedious, but she thinks it's really <laughs> funny and You're maybe right. they should be together. Like, and again, you can do as a, as a screenwriter, you can do that level of character work with a few deft strokes like that, where you give Barry like a little monologue, you have her like really paying attention. She asks a question, right? At like sort of the right moment. And then he drops the punchline, which is dumb, but like she laughs right there. It's that is just like brisk, but really effective character work. That's like spot on for tone. And it just buys us right in. Yeah. Like that reminds me of being, 12 or 13 and like having my first girlfriend and like talking on the phone for an hour and being like, I I probably spent 10 minutes recounting the episode of TV I just watched. Yep. Right. But then she'd just be like attentive and listening. And I'm like, man, what a patient human. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Dude, like Carson Daly just said the craziest thing on TRL. Like, <laughs> um, okay. Well, so why don't we move into lessons and continue this conversation over there? Brian, what's your lesson from Punch Drunk Love? Um, and we, we covered it a lot, but I, we, you know, we talked about how this movie keeps us with Barry. Um, and I was thinking also it, it the, the, the way the world is constructed to not make Barry feel like a weirdo in this world. Um, you know, so it's not just that the movie keeps us with him. It's also about how everything else surrounding him makes us feel like he is our our sort of center in this chaos um i was thinking about weirdly the the opening of into the spider verse where miles is like walking down the street and high-fiving people and doing all that kind of stuff and then i was just thinking like put that scene or put that character in the godfather right (laughs) like it just makes no sense and you're like who is this insane person right but like that's not the movie Spider-Verse is. Spider-Verse is like, look at this movie, look at this world, like this character fits right at home in this world. Um, so I was thinking about all the ways that that Punch Drunk Love does this. And first of all, as we talked about, just the world is weird, right? Like right from the first 60 seconds of the movie, we're like, okay, this is a weird world. So we are going to get a, a sort of quirky character in this world. But then you have his coworkers who don't really treat him differently. They don't treat him like the like the weird kid, you know. Um, Except for his and then suit. Was that right? <laughs> Why, Why are you wearing, wearing that suit? suit? Um, and then his sisters treat him like a weirdo, but they are presented as as sort of these antagonizing forces, right? So we are now in, more endeared to him because we're like, oh no, they're the the weird like they feel wrong in this world you don't feel wrong you feel okay they feel wrong and then of course the phone sex situation like that's just like a a quick way in to make you love a character is just like there are like this innocent character is having bad things happen to him right so we're in and then as we talked about lena is also quirky in her own sort of complimentary not quite the same but her own way where it's like okay she doesn't see him as as being weird like so the other this other main character in his life sees him as normal so to speak um and then also he's self-aware the fact like when he's talking to robert smigel who was in this movie for some reason um you know the the dentist brother-in-law and he just says like you know i start i i don't I, i'm not happy sometimes i don't like myself i you know i start crying for no reason like oh okay so so you understand that you, you right. know, that you are dealing with something, right? Um, 
So I feel like all of that works together so that we are, we feel like we're watching a weird movie, but in this movie, Barry is sort of a normal character in the movie, even though, of course, the, the, the text of the movie acknowledges that he is not necessarily super normal. We feel like, like we've talked about so much in this episode already, we feel so much like we're with him, but the the entire story world is constructed so that he feels like a, like a normal person thing for us to, a normal place for us to be in the story world totally yeah it, it's impressive that it manages to do that because that is very much the case and he's pretty weird um, <laughs> but i love him uh awesome cool alex what's your lesson yeah i think my lesson is just about um like truth like capturing truth through weirdness and it, i think one of the best examples i, I can think of is the kind of like makeout scene in the hotel room when yep. they're talking about uh, smashing each other's faces in and sucking their eyeballs out. And I think there's just, there is a visceral truth captured in that, that is just like the intensity and absurdity of like falling in love and like the intensity of feeling for the person is almost like wrong and violent and like too much. And, and I think the, this movie just captures so many ineffable things through absurdity and through extreme uh, situations. And uh, I think it just, it's a, that's part of what was so refreshing about the movie is that it just reminds me every time I watch it of what is possible in this medium, which is mm. you have these tools at your disposal to just transmit like a truth, like a, a truth about existence, <laughs> you know, like, like, we're not going to be literal about it. We're not going to show you like a totally realistic scene here with two very normal people being realistic with each other. We're going to push this to its extreme to get at a truth that is like deeply felt, but we can't really even put a word to it or like speak about it. It's like an, it's an ineffable truth about existence. And we're somehow going to capture it in this audio visual medium uh, and so you can reflect on it and feel it back without having to like talk about it or like put it into words. Um, you know, I, I'm even struggling to put it into words myself right now, which is what is so impressive about the movie is I don't know how, once again, you sit down and write a script and get a crew together to make something that is just about capturing ineffability, <laughs> but that is what this movie is. And so I think it's just a good lesson that, um, you know, in a stylized movie, in a stylized world, you have an opportunity to to communicate the ineffable. And I think this movie does that throughout, which is just why it is so amazing and why it feels so special. Mm. Yeah, it's magic. Yeah. What I also love about that scene where they're making out is that I think it's a great example of like specificity being universal. Where mm -hmm. like, I would never exchange those words with someone I was in love with. But like, I've definitely said weirdly specific inside jokey <laughs> things, right? Yeah. Like that's part yeah. of like a, the connection that you have. And so it's doing, I feel like it's doing that on top of all right. that stuff. Yeah. 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 Trisha, what's your lesson? Yeah, I think this movie makes beautiful use of visual motifs. And the one that I like the most is the silhouettes. Like this movie is obsessed mm. with showing people in silhouette and it's, mm. it's such a beautiful, like recurring visual motif. Um, like from the very beginning where we see him like walking out to the door of the storage unit and just standing there framed in the doorway or where warehouse, where whatever it is, empty office space, <laughs> right. um, in an alley, uh, 
Although I love that later on he says he lives in Sherman Oaks, like on Moore Park. And I'm like, yeah, of course, that is where you are. Right. That's what apartment town looks like. His apartment kitchen is literally (laughs) what my apartment kitchen (laughs) was for like the first 10 years. It's such an LA apartment in so many ways. Hers too, like the hallways, like the actual space of her apartment building. Oh my God. Um, But just the the silhouette when we see him walk out to that doorway and we kind of see him frame that way, it signals to us like, okay, this is kind of the visual language the movie is going to be trading in. Um, And, you know, it does a number of like sort of textural and tonal things, right? When you can't see someone's face, you aren't being invited to consider like the nuance of what they're feeling. You're being invited to consider like more broadly the image and the idea sort of of where the character is positioned um and there are so many wonderful examples of it in this movie there's they're they're literally everywhere when you start looking for the silhouettes you suddenly can't stop seeing them because they're everywhere um but of course one of the best ones is the one in hawaii where they walk up to each other and like looks like he's gonna shake her hand but then they like start kissing and it's so beautifully choreographed and everyone is just walking past them in this like incredibly fast, purposeful way, right? Not even how people walk. Again, the world of the movie is stylized and the visual mm -hmm, and the number of silhouettes we've seen up until that point really signal to it. Like they keep us from bumping too hard on that image. I mean, it's still drawing a lot of attention to itself, but it's not coming completely out of nowhere. It's using language that we've seen throughout the movie of like anytime, basically anytime somebody walks into <laughs> to Barry's office, they're like, we end up seeing them a lot in silhouette because of the nature of those huge, um, you know, warehouse doors and things. And the last image of the movie we see is in silhouette mm-hmm. as well, where he's sitting there playing the harmonium and she comes up and, and wraps her arms around him and, um, I think the last line of the movie is, so here we go. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it, it's, uh, yeah, just really beautiful. So um, it's just another example of how filmmaking ele- elevates screenwriting and um, does a lot to convey the texture and stylization of a world, right? If we're not seeing, yeah, the details of a character's face or the way that they're holding their body necessarily, we're just seeing kind of this like striking, iconic like silhouetted image, it lets us know that we don't necessarily have to worry all the time about the groundedness of it. Um, and that's, that's perfectly on display in that like scene and that climactic kissing scene in Hawaii. It's a beautiful image. It's incredibly stylized. Um, yeah. and we're ready for it by then. It's also, I mean, that image is just so magical because it's, yeah. it's one of those shots where like the more, the longer it goes on, the more I'm into it. And the more I just want to look at the shapes and the shape they're making as a single unit. And it happened to me also when he goes and confronts Philip Seymour Hoffman, that, you know, the, the way their faces are like positioned next to each other, yes, it, it reminds yes, yes, me yes. of like an optical illusion where it's like, is this a vase or is this the... And it's yeah. just like, it's like I just, I just want to like look at this because it's just so perfectly positioned and framed and that's just also just like an extra pleasure of watching a master filmmaker like paul thomas anderson is just you know i i just want to look at your image for itself (laughs) regardless of everything else that's just when you're in like movie heaven just Mm -hmm. just want to look at this image for 10 minutes yeah it's upsetting (laughs) 
as you're saying, as you're saying, Trisha, like, how did you know that this was how we were supposed to see this character in this moment to make us think the thing or feel the thing? Like, what the hell? Yeah. Um, yeah. Also, like, JJ gets a lot of, like, lens flare, like, talk and credit and blah, blah, blah. But, like, PTA knows how to use a lens flare. Big uh-huh. time. Like, oh, oh, <laughs> so good in this. Yeah. Um, I think that should just be my lesson. Study his lens flares. Um, yeah, I'm just just going to, again, talk about the thing that I was, the reason I was sat down to watch this movie back in film school was the the sound, the sound design, as we've talked about. Uh, so sound designer, Christopher Scarbozio, mixer, Michael Semanic, and Gary Rydstrom. Mm. If you're a sound mix nerd, you know them. Gary Rydstrom, a little movie called Jurassic Park, uh-huh. among many others. So it's just like... <laughs> the greatest sound people working and kind of like to your point, Alex and, and yours, Brian, everybody's points of like the subjectivity is there and how you can use the filmmaking and sound to create a world and uh, create, yeah, a way to feel about what's happening. Like sound is such an emotional tool and too often it is relegated to, well, we need fully of the sound, the footsteps, so people believe they're walking in this space. And so I love anytime a movie like this lets the sound, like creative, the sound artists, like do storytelling work and do character work and do some of that lifting because it's some of the most effective tools that you have to get inside somebody's head emotionally. And I feel like this movie sets up the perfect world for that to happen and for them to go all out in just the the best most beautiful way so mm-hmm. what sound can do punch drunk love thumbs up <sighs> what else have you guys been watching <laughs> alex what have you been watching recently um you know you know we're living through uh you know kind of stressful times uh sometimes you just want to like relax and just enjoy yourself uh for is, is an this, hour are you starting like a like a commercial <laughs> <laughs> yeah basically my husband and i have been looking for a show to just to be like put on like to just relax for a night not even like pay attention to super closely but just relax and we found curb your enthusiasm it's just perfect for just Aww. i just want to like sit on the couch and sip a glass of wine and just watch larry david do his thing. Uh, it's just been so nice. Uh, so, uh, I mean, he, he can be stressful if you get stressed out by like people saying horrible things in social situations, but their episodes are so, are just so like breezy and fun and clever. Um, and you know, I haven't been watching that show for years. And so we, we just kind of jump back in. We just watched season 10 and now we're watching the new season 11. Uh, but I'm just really enjoying it. So you know, if you're a fan, you're a fan. Uh, it's just it's just been a nice uh, pandemic era uh, kind of escape. Uh, Kirby nice. enthusiasm on HBO Max. Thanks. I, yeah, partner watches that a lot. And I haven't watched any of it. And I come into the room and it's just like people just being like, Larry, what? Larry, what? <laughs> like, and that's all I know of the show. But it seems like that's every episode. Oh, but I hear it it's too. accurate. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Brian, what have you been watching recently? Uh, I watched The Lost Daughter on oh. Netflix, yeah, which is uh, written and directed by Maggie Gyllenhaal, um, based on a book. And if there's a way to get me into a movie, Olivia Coleman and Jesse Buckley playing the same character in different timelines, I'm like, oh, yep, I'm, <laughs> I'm done. Um, so yeah, it's there's not really a 
sort of elevator pitch log line to it. It's Olivia Coleman's on vacation in Greece. And, you know, there are characters around her. Dakota Johnson is, is also a main character in this movie. Um, and the way she's interacting with them reveal things about her character. There's a lot of sort of, it's almost like a character mystery uh, where it's, who is this character? Why is she the way that she is? Um, things are sort of suggested about her past, uh, but but sort of inferred in a way that are implied in a way that you are kind of meant to put things together. And then we start flashing back to Jesse Buckley as a younger uh, Lita, as her character's name. Um, and then and then things start becoming more clear. Peter Sarsgaard is in the flashback sequences. Um, and it's it's a really fascinating character study. It's a really interesting example of, of how a story controls information uh, to sort of when it suggests certain things and then it would re when it reveals certain things and how the things it reveals make you recontextualize things that you've seen so far. So it's, it's a weird sort of thing where I don't want to like talk about the actual plot that much. It's just mm -hmm. like, if you want to watch two of the best actors alive, be amazing and kind of get a really fascinating character study. Um, I highly recommend it. Awesome. Nice. Yeah. Sounds cool. Been meaning okay. to watch that. Yeah. Trisha, what about you? Uh, so similar to you, Alex, I've been looking for something just to chill out to. Um, and someone recommended to me that I catch on, catch up on Escape to the Chateau, um, which is a home improvement show, I guess you could call it. Um, but it's about this British couple, uh, Dick and Angel Strawbridge, who decided to buy a 45 room chateau. <laughs> You can't just drop those names. Those are their names. <laughs> it's not my fault. Uh, they also have two children named Arthur and Dorothy Strawbridge. <laughs> um, wow. Yeah. Anyway, uh, they decided to buy a 45-room chateau in rural France. That's a lot of rooms. And, yeah, it's, a, it's like a 18th century chateau um, that's like, yeah, it's uh, – absolutely dilapidated needs like so much work um the series started in 2016 and then they started that's when they started renovating it and they're doing it like little by little um and like the show goes all the way up until the present which is like in covid times what do they do with it um which is really fascinating but most of the journey if you start the show over from the beginning and you can watch it i believe on peacock um but like if the most of the journey is them like turning it into a wedding venue and it's, it's just like, I've talked about home renovation shows on here before. Cause I watch a lot of them and I love them. Um, but I'm pretty specific about the ones that I like and the best home renovation shows out there are the ones that really invest you in the people who are doing the renovation. Right. Like I don't really care if you like discovered rot in your floorboards and oh no, now you have to fix all your floorboards. Like, that's like a tiny amount of drama that's not going to mean that much to me. But if I care about the relationships of the people, and, and that's just a sleight of hand that all reality TV has to pull off. It's right. all about character. Yeah, exactly. Um, anyway, they're a lovely couple, the Strawbridge family, and they have two children, Arthur and Dorothy, who start the show in 2016 when they're like really young. Um, they're like three and one when the show starts or something like that. And now they're like preteens. Um, 
or they're, I don't know, Arthur look, is, is like fully in school. He's like 10, I guess, or whatever. But um, anyway, it's it's a lovely show that you can catch up on if you're looking for something that's just like very easy watching. Every single episode, they're just like, we're going to remake one of the rooms in our French chateau. Um, and yeah, it's just, uh, it's, it's, it's home renovation, but on a scale that feels a little more significant because the family's so lovely. And then also like people come and get married there and like, you can see them hosting weddings and like they're caring for their guests and things like that. It's nice. If you're into hospitality, which I am like, I don't know, I love playing host and, uh, to people and which I can't do and haven't been able to do for the last two and a half years. Um, it kind of scratches that itch. So it's a lovely little show. Nice. It's called Escape to the Chateau. Nice. Cool. That is also a thing. I mean, <laughs> yeah. Listen, so people watch rooms. all kinds of things, yeah. Yeah. including no, me. It's, it's very true. Uh, well, I have been watching and we have been watching the book of Boba Fett, which is now finished. So yes. if you want to hear us talk about that show and kind of finish rounding out our feelings on Star Wars and what Boba Fett, uh, the the place that it stands in the pantheon of Star Warsy things, uh, that is available as a what we're watching uh, podcast series for our patrons over on Patreon. Um, it was fun. I'm glad we did it. It's always <laughs> it's always fun to discuss these things and uh, go through the emotions with with you guys. There has been a lot to discuss yeah. indeed uh awesome okay well this has been our conversation about punch drunk love <sighs> we want to say a big thank you as always to the patrons that make this show possible thank you to our producer vince major and our editor eric schneider i'm michael tucker and i've been joined today by trisha rand brian bittner and alex Cayeros. all of our twitter handles are in the show notes send us a tweet and say hi and we will see you in the next episode bye everybody Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.